Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome back, everyone. It's episode 48, and I'm recording this on Wednesday, the 3rd of March, 2021. Here in North Yorkshire, it feels like spring has sprung. Suddenly, you can hear birdsong in the garden, there are snowdrops everywhere, and the ground nesting birds have arrived on the moor behind our house. It's always uplifting to see the curlews, lapwings, golden plover, and oyster catchers coming back to Swaledale. Last week, I was online at the Save Our Soils conference on regenerative agriculture. I enjoyed chairing a discussion with three farmers from the UK. They were using regenerative techniques like no-till, reducing fossil inputs, keeping fewer livestock to reduce grazing pressure, and other measures that improved biodiversity, locked more carbon into the soil, and made their business more resilient. In today's episode, I'm with Parasgebi Fotoglu, sustainability engineer at Chimera Fabrics, which designs and manufactures upholstery and panel textiles for a range of sectors, from commercial and education, healthcare and hospitality, to passenger transport. I was at a sustainable textile conference at the University of Huddersfield a few years ago, and I was amazed to hear about the range of circular initiatives Chimera was doing. Chimera uses natural fibres, including plant fibres and wool, plus recycled fibres, including from ocean plastics. We talk about some of those initiatives, including something called bast fibres. If you've not heard of those, bast fibre textiles are made from the stems of plants like nettles, hemp, flax and jute. These are rapidly renewable and sustainable fabrics, which are inherently flame retardant. They're also biodegradable and can contribute to improved biodiversity on the farms where they're grown. We also talk about technical knitting, plus a major project kicking off this year focused on conducting environmental product profiles for both Chimera's natural and synthetic fabric offering. That'll help the business to better measure and describe its environmental footprint. In the conversation, we use a couple of acronyms, FR and VOC. FR is fire retardant meaning a group of chemicals designed to inhibit the flammability of synthetic fabrics. And VOCs are volatile organic compounds, a group of carbon-based chemicals which evaporate easily at room temperature. These are often used in fabric treatments and coatings. Many of them are associated with human health issues. I've included a link to an article in the show notes at circuareconomypodcast.com. Paraskevi also mentions one of the Chimera product ranges that I struggled to hear properly. It's the Kragan Flax range, which uses a blend of wool and flax fibre. (music) 
I'm here with Paraskevi Futterglue, who is sustainability engineer at Chimera Fabrics, a textile manufacturing company for task and soft seating based in West Yorkshire in the UK. Paraskevi has expertise in circular economy projects and innovative design ideas, and her main focus is exploring new sustainability paths and enhancing circular initiatives with the design, innovation and manufacturing teams across the business. At Chimera, she's developed a broad knowledge on environmental accreditation, VOC emissions, the use of chemical substances at each stage of fabric manufacture, and the incorporation of sustainable fibres. Paraskevi, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. You've studied statistics and have a master's degree in economic development and sustainability. And over the last 10 years, you've lived and studied in different countries. I'm curious to know how your education and experience led you to the circular economy. Uh, Hello, Catherine. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, So, yeah, um, as you said, my studies brought me here where I am. I studied statistics, uh, but then I when you have to decide when you're 18 years old, what you want to do, I don't think you're ready, quite ready for that. So I always knew that I that's not the career I wanted to pursue. And so when I started working in the, well, something relevant to statistics, then I decided that's not what I want to do. And I decided to uh, start to do my studies on something more connected to the environmental impact and sustainability. It was a new field for me. And then I moved to Spain for that. And then I found out that that's what I always wanted to do. Uh, it was my devotion. And I just kept following doing that and pursuing it um, throughout the years, wherever I've been moving. <laughs> so were you studying in the UK and then found Chimera? Or did you, were you looking, to, you know, worldwide and came across no. Chimera? I was, I studied in Spain, then I moved to Finland for a couple of years, and then I moved to the UK, Uh, but when I moved in the UK, I was just looking for a new job, and I found Chimera, which then I realized that uh, this is the right place to start, because of all the sustainability effort that they've Mm. been been working for so many years. I was, um, when I first came across Chimera back at Huddersfield University at one of the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles conferences that they've had uh, over a few years. Um, I was just amazed and so impressed by all the things they were doing. And this was, you know, um, three or four years ago, Um, just thinking, wow, this this is brilliant. There's there's a company already doing this. And the fact that it's, um, you know, based near where I was brought up, kind of, you know, made it even better back in the the textile heartland of, of West Yorkshire. Um, so that's really good. So um, tell us a bit about Chimera's journey and um, and maybe some of the pitfalls um, along that journey and trying to do things in a more sustainable way. Yeah, so Chimera's got a l- long tradition in developing uh, innovative uh, fabrics and ideas. So that started back like roughly 20 years ago, 1998 with the rescue product, which was, uh, it was a fabric made out of recycled uh, woolen jumpers, army jumpers. Um, It was a great, uh, 
idea in terms of uh, circular economy and, and also in terms of chemicals because they were just using, they were pulling back um, the jumpers into fiber and then they were just processing the fabric without uh, any dyeing. It was just the, the, the natural coral of the jumper actually. Um, and ha- no matter how good as an idea it was, it was I think too early uh, in the market because circular economy wasn't big back then. So it wasn't appreciated in terms of uh, a sustainability idea at the time. And also aesthetically, uh, it was a bit challenging. So it wasn't a big, uh, huge sales success. So we had to discontinue the fabric. And that was the first lesson we learned. Um, it's not just you know, the idea is not just good enough, but you need also to work on the design and how and the looks of the fabric. That was the first uh, lesson. And then following that, we had, uh, we have been working with recycled polyester for a few years now as well. So we started with uh, post-industrial uh, waste uh, recycled polyester and then we developed that into post uh, consumer recycled polyester there are quite a few categories so uh, it sounds a little bit confusing but the post consumer is is basically pet bottles that we drink and we dispose and they are recycled um, and then uh, we also developed um a closed loop initiative. So we had a partnership with one of our yarn suppliers. And uh, what we were doing uh, is uh, we were returning back to them our remnants and our waste from the weaving uh, process. And they were uh, returning back this waste into yarn by a process which they were shredding uh, fiber and they were extruding the polymer and then they were extruding it into yarn. Um, I think the difficulty with this closed loop initiative is, again, is a great idea. However, it is a bit uh, challenging in terms of, not aesthetics, but of how much um, you want to work with the design of the product because in order for this uh, yarn uh, to be returned back to us, it is dyed into a black color. And that means that how much black can you use in a design, right? (laughs) So we only use 25% of that yarn uh, into our products. Uh, So there is certain constraints um the other uh, not pitfall uh, yeah i would say pitfall because again great idea uh, a lot of effort but somehow we didn't manage to get it ra- not right but we couldn't maintain the good quality it was uh, a product that it was called um century and that was also made out of uh, a, a blend of wool and uh, youth fibers. So the youth fibers were uh, were fibers from uh, coffee okay. uh, sacks that they were pulled back into so the fiber. So jute, jute we uh, call it with an English was... accent. We'd call that jute. J. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, sorry. But just to make sure <laughs> everybody knows, because um, it's not it's not a common 
fibre fabric anyway, isn't it? Lots of people won't have won't have heard of it. So it is we'll, not. Yeah, you don't you don't tend to see jeans and t-shirts in it. So sorry, wool a, a blend of wool and jute. Yeah, so that was a great. Also, the looks. I think it looked fantastic. It was one of my favorite fabrics for the concept, the idea, the looks. Uh, but we had problem uh, meeting the same quality standards every time. And this is one of the problems of the industry, like what we were selling. It's not just about the flammability standards, but there are quite a few other things that you need to look uh, before you launch the product. Uh, and you need to have all the time the same quality, mm. a standard yeah, quality. So how can you really make sure that you're consistent with quality when your raw material is coming from waste? And that's, I think, the biggest constraint when it comes to um, circular economy projects. I'm sure you've, you're aware of those constraints yeah. as well. And I guess, I guess particularly uh, so when... Um, if you're providing seating for a big a big company, they might they might be placing a big order. Is mind they? It's not just if it was a consumer and one person buying a sofa, and they can see the fabric that's going to go on their sofa, and they're thinking, oh yeah, I love that. They don't really care whether um, the sofa that's that's you know going to be made for somebody else next month looks slightly different. That doesn't matter to them. But if it's a big company, then you know, it's, it has to look consistent, doesn't it? Exactly, that's the case, yeah. So we've, we, and we have also very, our quality team is very up to speed, just, just making sure everything has got the same uh, quality. So we, we, we do realise that this is a restriction, but when you have big orders, you just can't, <laughs> you need to deliver every time mm, the same, yeah, can't you? Yeah, keep going with it. Um, and you, you mentioned... Um, in, in talking about those fabrics, you mentioned um, fire retardant coatings, and I guess there'll be other um, finishing coatings and, and things that, that generally get applied, um, particularly to contract furnishing fabrics, but also to furnishing fabrics that people would buy for their homes, governed by legislation. Can you talk a bit about the challenges of some of that? Because I, I think a lot of people won't realise just... Um, you know how much other stuff is is applied. You might be thinking you're buying, um, you know, something in wool, but actually it's got all these other things on it as well. Mm -hmm. It is shocking, I think, the flame retardant industry, and especially I would say in the UK because we have really, uh, it is very regulated. Uh, they're very region. There are a lot of tests that you, you need to meet and regulations. Um, and there's a lot of FR in, in the market that really they shouldn't be used. Um, in the, in what we do at Chimera, we've, we managed to develop a, a line with a, a collection, the bast fiber collection, where we blended wool with bast fibers and uh, we managed to avoid using any FR post-treatment chemicals, so no extra post-treatment. Uh, and that was a great, one of the successes <laughs> of Camira. It was um, in the industry because we've, we've been working with this, uh, the nettle project, like the stink project. And we managed to develop this fabric, which was a blend of wool 
and nettle. And throughout the development is when we actually realized that when you blend those two things, that you manage to meet very high flammability standards without the post treatment. And since that, we've been working a lot with bust fibers. We've developed quite a few uh, different ranges. So we started with the nettle and then we developed, we went, um, we're, sorry, we're working with hemp as well. And we have a hemp farm in Leicester uh, owned by Camira. And then we've also been using flax quite a lot. And we try to, uh, and also just actually this month, we launched a new product, the Kragan Flax, which is um, essentially uh, the older product that Kragan that we had, but we added a little bit of flax and now we don't have to FR the product as so a post treatment. So what was the first um, fibre in there? It was called Kragan. Kragan. Okay. It was I've never Kragan. Heard of that. And now the new range is called Kragan Flax. So what's, what's Kragan? Is it a... It, it was just 100%... No, it was 100% oh, okay. wool right. range. Very okay. chunky fabric. So now it's... It's wool and flax. And so um, just to, again, um, help help those who aren't familiar with textiles to understand it, you've mentioned bast fibres quite a lot, and we've given some examples of hemp flax and nettles. Um, but can you unpack what a, a bast fibre is so that people can kind of get the difference between that and, um, you know, a short fibre like uh, wool or, or, or cotton or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So there are plants like flax uh, or nettles. We all are familiar with the net stinging nettle, aren't we? And uh, what we use, uh, we harvest those plants uh, in fields that normally they would not be suitable for any other crops. And then we just harvest them. Um, we let them on the field. And there is this process which is called retting process, uh, which is separates the fiber um, from the wooden part, from the stem of the plant. And once that's separated uh, by the retting process, which is 100% a natural process, you just leave it there in the field for a couple of weeks. Uh, there's another process uh, which is called mechanical decortication. And then you can actually separate the fabric uh, based on a process on the difference of weight of the woody part and the fiber. So uh, you manage to take this fiber and then you just blend it uh, mm. with wool uh, to create So the advantage of, uh, advantage of using bass fibers, if I can um, summarize what, what you said, is generally they tend to grow well in... Um, you know, poorly fertile areas, um, not needing loads of agricultural chemicals and fertilizers and stuff like that. As we all know, nettles will pop up <laughs> everywhere. Um, but a lot of the others, you know, um, hemp and flax and so on, they're, they're quite sustainable to, to grow. Um, and you can make, as I understand it, you can make quite a long fiber out of them. So um, they work well as a, as a blend, is that right? But perhaps not so well um, on their mm -hmm. on their own, um, and also the the process of turning them from a uh, a plant um, into something else um, 
the beginning bit of it sounds like it might be like a fermentation process if you're just kind of leaving them in the field to rot a bit then um then that's that's all good as well isn't it it, it is exactly um so exactly that. so you're developing quite a lot around these bass fibers which, which from what i understand you know we used to use loads more of uh, we've kind of moved away from them towards um you know cotton and and particularly the synthetic blends but um, bass fibres in themselves, uh, you know, have, have been around for centuries, haven't they? They have been around centuries. And they, uh, we started using them, I think, during the Second World War uh, because there was a big uh, scarcity of uh, cotton. So they started using them again. Uh, but then also it was... Uh, um, I think the, the main reason why they stopped using those uh, fibers, it was because, you know, cotton was everywhere. Uh, although we all know it's not the most sustainable fiber uh, in terms of water consumption and pesticides. Uh, however, in terms of, uh, it's very easy to, in terms of labor, like the, the industry has developed so much, so you can get easily, uh, the cotton whereas for nettles it, it required a higher labor <clears throat> uh, work it was more difficult to get it and i don't think the industry because it's not that popular they haven't uh, worked it out how they can do it more uh, efficiently yeah but but maybe they will because yeah, it's, it's it's not a popular no, fiber anyway such, you know that i think those kind of fibers have such great um potential um and co you know cotton so pesticide and water hungry um, and um, you know, often it's grown in areas of water scarcity, so it's it's um, uh, not 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 a great um, exactly yeah. a great option. So um, you talked a little bit about um, closed loop and open loop uh, processes. Um, maybe you could give us an example of a, a couple of those projects that that you've got underway. Well, I would like to discuss a little bit about the Oceanic Range, which was launched uh, back in, well, last year, in 2020. <laughs> uh, and I think we're, it is a great project, uh, and we're really happy about that, because uh, what, the Oceanic Project is, um, actually, we it is incorporating uh, sea waste into the fabric, uh, we've been working with the SQL initiative. And uh, so the SQL initiative um, is working with a few different stakeholders from uh, non-governmental organization to manufacturers. And uh, they all work together. And uh, basically what they do is they do ocean cleanups. And uh, they are mainly in Europe, so mainly in the Mediterranean region. So they're quite local and they're trying to tackle uh, a global problem of the ocean pollution. And they do the cleanups. And once they do the cleanup, then they sort out the waste uh, because it could be anything uh, from metal, glass to plastic. And um, once they sort out the waste and the plastic, then they it's the same pretty much process as the closed loop. So they take back the plastic waste, so they, they clean it, they shred it, they extrude it into yarn, and then the yarn is returning back to our 
premises and we weave it into fabric. And uh, we so we've developed this uh, range last year. We've lo- managed to launch last year. Fantastic. Uh, and so is that is that getting good traction with customers and so on? Are they excited about it? It. It, it is a very popular, yes, it is indeed. They're very excited about it. Uh, there's a, And that's a shift on attention on the plastic pollution, which obviously it's only a good thing at the moment. Uh, customers are getting, I'm jumping a little bit here, but they're getting uh, very demanding with uh, what they want to buy. Uh, they're not happy with buying raw polyester, virgin polyester, or just material that doesn't have an environmental aspect on it. And that's only a good thing because it can lead uh, to, to innovation and great design mm. ideas from the manufacturers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, constraints are a great way of forcing innovation, aren't they, to, to you know, suddenly have to not use this or, um, you know, only focus on recycled materials, that kind of thing, can really, really help focus focus those creative minds on, you know, how else could we could we do this? And I think it's brilliant news that customers are starting to actually demand that. So now it's not a case of trying to encourage them. Um, and it feels as if companies are able to tell a much better story to their um, customers and, and employees. I remember uh, Greg Lavery from Ripe Office talking about um, some of his customers who were, um, you know, quite expensive lawyers. Um, and, um, you know, it was sort of... You introduce a new client, and if you've got a really expensive, um, you know, antique table in your meeting room, that already puts the puts the customer off because they're thinking, how, you know, how much are you going to charge me for this? But when you've got an interesting story to tell about, you know, some <laughs> post-consumer waste that's been recycled into this multicolored table, then that tells a completely different story, doesn't it? And sets a different tone to the relationship with your with your own customer. So people are finding all sorts of Certainly, all sorts yeah. of knock-on effects that maybe they hadn't anticipated about you know doing things that are that are better for um, planet and society. Um, and um, one of the other things we we talked about um, in our emails ahead of the podcast was um, the technical knitting initiative um, that Camira has developed. So yeah, this is a unit uh, based in uh, Nottingham, and uh, the I think is a great. What they do is like essentially they're creating. Uh, it's it's a neat it's a knitting facility, and they're creating cases for uh, chairs. Um, and I think it's a great in terms of uh, processing. So there's the facility is waste free because it's all knitted for the chair, so there is no cut after that. It's just the case, put in the chair, that's it. Um, and the other thing is that there's no water uh, process at all uh, in the unit. So we have a big, um, so obviously one of the biggest um, constraints into the textile manufacturing is the water consume. And this uh, facility doesn't have any wet processes. So there's another uh, benefit on using that type of uh, mm, material. Yeah, and and an improvement both in water consumed and also in I guess in the chemicals that you would normally have had to, um, you know, clean up before um, mm-hmm. the wastewater went away. So lots exactly. lots of uh, benefits there, and 
again, when we were talking before the podcast, you mentioned um, the exciting project that's coming up for you in 2021 that's focusing on trying to do environmental product profiles for both Chimera's natural and synthetic fabric offerings. So Chimera can um, measure and, and start to describe um, its environmental footprint. Can you tell us a bit about, about that? Yes, this is a, a project that I really am really looking forward. Uh, I really, I've been craving to do this project for a few years now. Uh, it, is an, it is a big project, very uh, time-consuming, so it's going to take most of my time. Um, it's going to be a lot of back and forth, uh, requiring information from suppliers, which we all know is not the easiest thing to get. Uh, but hopefully we can get some... Uh, e- well, we, could, we can have the environmental product declarations and then understand our footprint, understand uh, the impact that our company, that our products have uh, and how do they actually affect the environment. Um, So the EPDs essentially are based on life cycle assessment studies. You uh, gather information from the suppliers, you put them all in a spreadsheet and then what you see as the final document is, uh, okay, uh, what was the effect on climate change for producing this fabric? Uh, What was the eutrophication because of the chemical use? There's quite a few factors uh, that you want. So you have to link them to the factors that they're more related to the manufacturing process. Um, We've only just started this week. Last week we had the kickoff uh, meeting, but I'm really looking forward to work on this project and... uh, we can hopefully be able to share the results with all our suppliers and customers and everyone who is interested to know how do we actually produce fabrics and what's the real cost behind uh, one meter of fabric. Yeah, because I think it's such a complex area. And I guess lots of people, once if they started to do a life cycle analysis for their own products, would quickly realise just how complex this is and how many different factors come into play. Um, and, um, you know, it's not just about carbon footprint, is it? It's about all sorts of other things that, you know, the where the chemicals come from for the coatings and dyes and, um, you know, ha- what happens to them afterwards and, um, you know, how, how the fibres are grown or made and um, just a whole, a whole raft of different things. So... Um, I'm sure. I'm sure that's going to be a project on your on your to do list for um, quite a while, isn't it? To to get scripts <laughs> and as new fabrics come along, it's it's um, more analysis. So um, perhaps perhaps we can finish up by talking about some of the um, general trends in the industry. We've talked a little bit about how customers' needs and demands are changing, um, but what what about you know the rest of your industry what's what's happening and what are people starting to focus on and move towards yeah i think uh, the, the 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 main issue that is uh, is recurring nowadays is is more about the transparency and chemical disclosure of uh, frs or any other uh, dye stuffs uh that has started uh, i think the trend started from the us market where the few building standards are very popular like the lead and the well and the briam and um, 
essentially they they demand you to have certain environmental aspects in order to uh, add your material to a new building. And uh, those standards, they do value a lot uh, transparency uh, and chemical compliance with a few lists that they are like hazardous lists with chemicals. And uh, I, th I think that's what I see is the biggest trend at the moment, chemical transparency. Because I think the where the fabric is coming from and the mills and the effluents have been discussed in the future quite a lot. So we're moving to the second analysis, a little bit more in depth of what's actually inside mm. the fabric. And I, I guess people are, are starting to realise just... Um, how how little kind of uh, you know in the round thought has gone into deciding which dyes and coatings and finishing chemicals and so on that we use. Um, I'm imagining it it's going to be a bit like um, uh, pharmaceuticals or whatever, where you know there's a there's a focus on finding the chemicals to make the body react in some way. And it's only only after sort of eight to ten years, when studies come in about side effects and, and you know and things that things are around long enough to find out what impact they actually have on the on the human body or the environment, um, and that's when you know as I understand it most most drugs are withdrawn after about ten years and reformulated. That's probably because that's when the studies all start to emerge that make them you know unviable. And in a lot of the things that we've done in, in all sorts of industries, um, you know, just like with asbestos, it was a wonder material, wasn't it, for a while? Um, and then we realised just what horrific effects it's, it's got, but that doesn't emerge for quite a while. Um, so I, I can imagine that over the next 10 or 20 years, there'll be all sorts of, of things appearing on red lists that we've been using for, um, you know, years or decades. Yeah, yeah, and the many chemicals that they're phasing out at the moment. Uh, so, that's, so that's only a good thing. I think there's a lot of scrutiny of the chemicals mm, at yeah, the moment. I, yeah, I do think that's good. That leads us to be more vigilant. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that's yeah. only a good thing. And maybe thing, going back really. to some of the more traditional ways of, of dying that, you know, we, we've we've it's been around for longer, so we're able to, um, measure its effects more its long-term effects more easily um so that all sounds well, that mm -hmm. all sounds good so um just to come back to to you uh Pariskevi, um working in this you know even even in the textile heartland of west yorkshire it must be quite a kind of niche area that you're in um you know when you explain to people that w what kind of stuff you do and explain about the circular economy do they get it? Are people starting to become more familiar with it or do you have to find some way to explain it? <laughs> Interesting question. Yeah, there's only, there's never uh, just one sentence of what I do or just a title. There's always a big of explanation and description of what I do. But once I start going, then they get, all, most of the people say, oh, really? And then they just bring in examples and say, yeah, I know this or I know that. So I, I, I feel that people are getting more familiar with the circular economy. 
um, they're bringing examples of their own uh, that they've seen on LinkedIn or in any other platform. Uh, so it, it is out there now. It is out there. It's not a niche anymore. Yeah, I think. Uh, and what's your what's your favourite example that you know that you've seen out there, or is it a Chimera one that you that's that's one of your favourites? I'm always saying about Chimera uh, as an example, and they they all seem to be very impressed. Uh, and I think my my favorite as an example is definitely the Bass Fiber uh, collection uh, because it's based on natural fibers and uh, like non that much chemical process. And it is a we're talking about a very robust fiber, so had to pick one example yeah. that will be and, and easy to grow so you know i think from an agriculture point of view it's it, it's really hopeful that um you know even in britain we could we could get it, it'd be brilliant if we were you know became a a nation really good at growing <laughs> nettles wouldn't it <laughs> so and uh, and i think you know in insect oh insects yeah love, everywhere love nettles so excellent <laughs> so yes. um, paraskevi how can people find out more and get in touch with you? So, yeah, I can leave my details uh, down below. I'll let you my LinkedIn, yeah, I'll put your um, LinkedIn um, uh, URL or whatever in the in the show notes. And uh, what's how do people find uh, Chimera on the on the uh, Internet? So yeah, I'll, I'll leave all the details. Uh, we have the website, and also I've got to leave the SQL initiative. Uh, oh yeah, that'd be good. We can put that in the website um, in show notes as well. The SQL initiative for your information. And we're all in all. Camille so is in all social media. Uh, I'm not that. I'm not very aware of them. I, I only use LinkedIn. But yeah, I think we've got Facebook, Instagram. You name it. I don't, what else is out there? I don't yeah, know. <laughs> and just to help people um, find um, it if they're not if they've not got a, uh, a pen handy, so either go to the show notes at socialeconomypodcast.com uh, or have a look on the internet, and it's spelt C A M I R A, Chimera. Um, so that should help people people find you and, and see some of the brilliant stuff that Chimera's got underway. So, um, well, good luck with your. Um, environmental product profiles for next year and uh, I suspect the year after the, and the year after that um, I'm sure that'll keep you out of out of mischief and uh, and with everything else that um, Chimera's leading the way on in um, in furnishing fabrics and so on and I look forward to seeing the next um, you know great innovations coming from West Yorkshire thank you very much Paris Gibby. thank you very much Catherine thank you for having me it's been a pleasure. Chimera has been working on these developments for a long time, so it's encouraging to hear Paraskevi share those lessons learned. Just making sustainable stuff isn't enough. Sustainability has to be underpinned by good design and by fulfilling the client's aesthetic needs. I'm really impressed by the variety of projects Chimera is progressing, covering both natural and synthetic fibres. And it's great news that firstly, Chimera's commercial customers are starting to ask for more sustainable options. And secondly, that new legislation is on the horizon at last, encouraging a shift to safe and more sustainable chemicals.
If you want to learn more about the issues of chemicals used in textile production, have a listen to an episode of Big Closet, Small Planet podcast. Phil Patterson, Managing Director at Colour Connections, has been working at the intersection between the textile industry and influential retail brands for over 20 years. And Phil has come to the conclusion that the current way we use and dispose of chemicals is both extremely wasteful and won't achieve the environmental and health improvements that we need. Phil argues that we need to move from the current single-use, linear, by-use dump model for chemicals to a circular model. And he explains what this new model should look like. The link is in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. That's it for this episode of the Circular Economy Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues. The Circular Economy Podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you use circular, sustainable approaches to make a better world for people, planet and your business. Get in touch via the website or connect with me on LinkedIn. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one or buy the new edition of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. Make sure you get the edition with the orange cover, which has a new chapter on packaging, lots of extra examples and updated research in every chapter. You can find resources and links mentioned in today's episode, as well as a transcript of the conversation at rethinkglobal.info, where you can find out how we help you succeed with Circular. <music>